Well, and indeed, as Herman mentioned, today we aim to start at a new book of the Bible, the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke. And as you know, my preaching experience has not been too much yet, and I've always gone to the Old Testament narrative sections. So for me to venture in the New Testament, I tell you, I feel quite challenged and inadequate, but I trust that you pray for me as, we, as I prepare messages and for that matter, for anybody else up here, week by week, as we seek to bring that great gospel message in the weeks that lie in between, uh, to get a very good sense of what the, of the of what Luke is trying to tell us, that great historian and evangelist, as we look at the life of our Savior with an intense gaze. Of course, all Scripture of God is inspired and most profitable to inform our mind for correction and for reproof and the building up of our most holy faith. We need that as we we gaze upon this uh, book for a long time and the ministry and of the words of our blessed Savior. And we sit at his feet, as it were, to hear all that comes out of his mouth. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 45, 22 says, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the world, for I am God and there is none else. This means we look away from ourselves, we look away from our idols, from other creatures, from our works, our prayers, anything except the Lord Jesus. And we ought to put our trust in him. Again and again, scripture commands us, he doesn't suggest, but commands us to look to him to look to Christ for full satisfaction and full deliverance from the guilt and the power of sin for a full and for an abundant life, a life of fruit and of purpose that is only found in our great Savior. And this is what Luke sought to impart, that look, as Isaiah talks about, that look of faith properly informed, a faith, as we shall see, that is rooted in history, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And in this gospel, and we see that also in the book of Acts, which he wrote as well. We, we see that God extends now his dealings with the Gentiles, and he's crafting in the people of the Gentiles into Israel to form the true Israel of God, all those that have the faith of Abraham. Isaiah wrote of the prophecy of one that was to come, the one hope that was prophesied all those years ago is the very one that Simon, that that Luke talks about in this gospel, he took the Lord Jesus into his hand and he says, Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before thee and all the people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. The God-man, the long-promised Redeemer, who is full of glory, of grace, and truth. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Look unto me, and be ye saved, Isaiah writes. And I pray as we start this book, if that is not your state this morning, that it will be. That you can honestly say, yes, here is my only hope. Here is my only comfort in life and in death. Here is that Lamb of God that I need so badly that shed his blood for me, so that I don't perish, but have everlasting life. And if you are saved this morning, you are a believer, I hope again and again that this gospel will give us warnings and comfort and admonition and commendation for the follower of the Lord Jesus. But most of all, that it shows us a great picture 
of the glory and the majesty of the Redeemer. So may the Lord bless us as we start to commence to study this book. And I have three points. One is who is Luke? Two is second, uh, a general overview of his gospel and then the prologue in verses one to four. First, we'll take a brief look of who Luke was, the man that wrote this book. And I say brief because we simply don't have a ton of information about the man himself. Unlike the other gospel writers, we can glean from their personalities. Uh, Luke doesn't directly, he's not in the gospels. He wasn't around at that point yet. He doesn't insert himself in the story like with the other gospel writers. And he did neither in Acts, although he is present only. We'll take a look at that later. Luke was not an eyewitness, uh, as the other gospel writers were. So in a way, he's like you and me. He came to faith through the testimony and the witness of Christ by others, by his preaching of his word, by the disciples. He doesn't sign his name at the end or the beginning of the book. He doesn't say, hi, I'm Luke. I'm writing this or that. Um, and ends his name with it. So um, we have to uh, look elsewhere for the evidence uh, that uh, Luke wrote this gospel. Externally, the church uh, from very early age onward has always attributed this book to, to, to Luke. Very early manuscripts that survive say the gospel of Luke. Very early on in church history when the first bundle of letters was put together, it was written, the Gospel of Luke. The early church father, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Eusebius, um, write about Luke as early as uh, the early uh, first century, uh, AD 130. Irenaeus was born around 130. Um, he knew Polycarp, who had been a disciple of John. He also attributes the Gospel to Luke. And so do many others if we look at extra biblical evidence. But we do get a clue as why the church throughout history has always been uh, attributing this book to Luke. First of all, we get a good hint that it was Luke, that, that Luke wrote the book of Acts. Both Luke and Acts were written by a man named Luke. They are the first and second volume of one large work, you could say, one large treatise. Um, and in writing it, he wrote the beginning and the progress of the gospel and of the church. In Acts 1 verse 1, the writer makes a reference to the earlier work. So we know that he wrote both works and he says, a former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, to all the work of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. In the book of Acts, starting in verse 16, we have the, what they call the we passages. We start, the writer starting to say, we did this and we did there. We sailed this way and we arrived in Rome. I'll give you a few examples. Acts 16, verse 10. And after he had seen the vision, Apostle Paul, immediately we endeavored it to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosening from Troas, we came with a straight course to Simopatria the next day, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, 
a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. Then again in chapter 21, verse 2, and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went on port and set forth. Again in 28, verse 16, and, we, and when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier, soldier that kept him. So prior to the 16th chapter, it was always they went here or they went there, etc. But somewhere along the way, the writer of Acts is joined to the Apostle Paul. He disappears once in a while, but very often we find him saying, we. And even though there are other laborers that traveled with the Apostle Paul, all those are named in this book except three. That is Demas, who deserted the faith, so he could not have written the book. Titus and Epaphras, and they don't fit either because they wouldn't have been there as early as in Acts 16. So we put it all together. Uh, the obvious choice is Luke. And through a process of elimination, who was where, the church have come to this conclusion that it was Luke that both wrote the gospel and the book of Acts. The name Luke is only mentioned three times by the apostle in the New Testament. First in Colossians 4, verse 14, where he calls him the beloved physician. Luke was a doctor. He was well-educated. And because of that, we see some more medical descriptions in his gospel than in the other gospels. Some terminologies that are in his book and in the book of Acts that are found. For instance, he speaks a little bit more when someone has a disease. He says a little bit more about the disease. When someone was a leper, he says he was full of leprosy. Um, things like that. He also speaks more of the, the miraculous cures that the Lord Jesus performed. And this also is a kind of a clue that he wrote the book that bears his name. He is the only book, I'm talking about medical terms, he's the only gospel writer also that speaks of the sweat being like drops uh, of blood falling from Jesus when he prayed on Mount Olives. Another mention of his name is in 2 Timothy 4, 10 and 11, where Paul writes, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. And then he says, Only Luke is with me. So here, Luke is still with Paul. In, in Philemon 24, Paul mentions Luke as a fellow laborer. Here, he was a fellow laborer with the Apostle Paul. And in these verses, you get a bit of an insight, a bit of a picture of who Luke the man was. He was obviously a converted man, convert to the Lord Jesus Christ. He left a good job, a good education to serve the Lord, and he was a very close companion with the Apostle Paul, and he was on his many travels. It is speculation, of course, but it could very well be that Luke was converted through the preaching of the Apostle. And it makes sense then that out of thankfulness and impression on his heart that he would go with Paul and serve him and be under his teaching. When others forsook Paul, he stood with them and likely tended to his physical needs. You know that as his, he was a person, he was a doctor, so he was his personal doctor. And we know from Paul's writing that he suffered many beatings and shipwrecks 
hungers and he was stoned, even was left for dead one time. And I show you something of the care of God's provision for Paul, isn't it? Giving my good brother with the needed gifts as a physician to help and to encourage him. It's a sign of how God provides along our way as well members of the body to help one another when we need it. And we see this practice in Dr. Luke. Through thick and thin, he stuck with the apostle. It would have been easy to kind of distance himself from Paul. He could have said, well, this is too dangerous. Too many beatings. I'm too long away from home. Too many shipwrecks. It's too cold. Uh, too much conflict and, and perils on the way. The message is too narrow. No one really likes us. We're getting kicked out of places. It tells you something about Luke's character and his changed life by the Lord Jesus that he had counted to cost when he followed Christ and when he decided to help his brother in the gospel. Luke doesn't put himself in the foreground in Acts or in some favorable light in any of his work. Uh, that tells you something about the humbleness of Luke as well. And he's never, as I said, mentioned by name in this gospel or in the book of Acts. Luke, in all likelihood, is a Gentile, um, and the first non-Jewish or the only non-Jewish writer of the New Testament. And we get that from Colossians 4, where Paul lists a series of, of brothers that are of the circumcision. And then he, separately, he mentions Luke uh, separately, meaning he is not of the circumcision. So Luke was a Gentile. That's about the man Luke. It's number two, a general overview of this gospel. So Luke ends up writing two books of the Bible, as said. It's about 30% of the New Testament. It's a large chunk, uh, more than Paul, more than John. His gospel is twice as long as Mark and has about 300 more uh, verses than John and um, about 80 more verses than Matthew. He does not give us a year in which he wrote this book, but it is believed that it has been written before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Otherwise, he would have mentioned it and written about it as fulfilled prophecy. He also does not mention the death of his friend Paul, which was which is thought to be around AD 70. So most scholars peg the date of his writing around uh, the early to mid 60s. And, and Luke, for those who know Greek, which I don't, but Luke's also write in a more classical Greek style as compared to the, some of the others. It was uh, appealing to the Greek in how he wrote. And it's also believed that he wrote particularly with the, with the Gentiles in mind. And we see that in this book and in Acts as well, of course, Jew and Gentile coming to together in the body, or the one body, um, as laid out in Ephesians 2. So his style is more polished. Um, and this might be because of his education that he had received. He was a medical doctor. Luke, unlike the other Gospels, does not start right away with the Lord Jesus, as John, for instance, does. But he gives us insight in the birth of John the Baptist, the announcement of his birth to his parents, Elizabeth and Zacharias. And he starts in the temple, and interestingly enough, he ends in the temple as well in chapter 24. And of course, he mentions the full account of the birth of Christ. 
which other than Matthew, in a, in a one-liner really, do not get mentioned in the other books. And perhaps, as a doctor, he wanted to make sure um, that this was in. You know, in his profession, he would have delivered babies and dealt with that process, and he put it in there. He also highlights the Lord's care for the needy, for the poor, for the outcasts in particularly. And, uh, so, and also, he deals with quite a few women of a kind of a questionable background in this book, and other women as well, of course. And about uh, all the people that are mentioned in this book, a good 30, 35% of them are, are women. Of course, Mary is, uh, a lot of information is found about Mary in this gospel. It does away with any of the Roman Catholic doctrines. If we, if we look at them and study them, we uh, see the announcement and Elizabeth's visits and so on, and Jesus in the temple and Mary's involvement uh, is mostly highlighted in this gospel. The Gentiles also get a lot more attention, tax collectors way more, almost put in a positive light than the other gospels as well. And some of the parables are also more, since he is it's a bigger gospel, you, there is obviously more information there, so he has more parables in it as well. Think of the parable, the beautiful parable of the lost son, the good Samaritan, the rich fool, the Pharisee, and the tax collector, and also more miracles are mentioned in this gospel. So Luke, um, as a physician, was trained in to give details. So he saw to place all things orderly together. And we'll see that later in the opening verses. And in this book, we also see much gospel joy, as one writer notes. It was joy at Jesus' birth, spoken by the angels. There's more joy in, in Luke's gospel than any of the others that he expresses. The gospel brings joy because that's what Luke had found for himself. He found that the Son of Man that came and to save the lost. He was an evangelist, after all, at heart, and it shows. Luke has that set of the three parables about the finding of the lost. The shepherd who goes and searches for the lost sheep, the woman that searches for the, the lost coin, and the father that, whose sons return to him. And in each case, these, these stories end with a, a joyous feast because people are now found, picture of the gospel. And Luke always, of course, points the reader to the saving work of Christ, and he wants that to be known. He wants the Jew and Gentile to find their hope in him. Luke also highlights Jesus being the son of Adam. From the manger to the throne, Luke highlights the defeat of Satan and the glorious kingdom of God as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. So if you want a rough sketch of the order of it, I would put it in this way. Chapter 1 and 2 is the birth of Christ. Chapter 3 to 9 is the beginning of his public ministry. From 10 to 19, the training of his disciples and the teaching about the kingdom. And then in the remaining chapters, the betrayal, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Christ. Throughout this gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ is presented as the great high priest and the great king and that great prophet. So that's just a brief introduction. And so let us start with the actual book in the prologue. So we'll start at verse 1, and I'll read the first 
four verses. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they deliver them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mayest know the excellency of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. And I'll start in verse 3, and we'll go back to verse 1, where he addresses and he dedicates this book, as he does the book of Acts, to a man called Theophilus. Theophilus meaning a lover or a friend of God. We're not certain who this man was, since Luke, but since Luke addresses him with a title most excellent, most commentators and people think him to be some type of Roman official in some government position of some kind. We see, for instance, in Acts 23, 26, when Claudius Lydius is addressed, uh, when he's addressing uh, Governor Felix, he also gives that same title, most excellent. And later on, Paul uses this same word translated as noble in the King James uh, when he addresses Festus. And again, it is used when the high priest is addressed. So in all likelihood, he was some high-ranking official. It's interesting to note that he says most excellent here, and when he goes to Acts, he just says, oh, Theophilus. Maybe he had gotten closer to him as a brother, and he just addresses him in a brotherly way. Theophilus was a convert, and Luke wants this man to be better acquainted with his faith. And the purpose is to ground him better yet in the things that he already knew, as we read here, and had been instructed as we all need to do, isn't it? It's the word of God that increases our faith, that settles us, that gives us hope, that's the end of all disputes. And, um, and he is writing this to this man. So this book is, yes, it is addressed to him, like many of the epistles are addressed to uh, particular churches in certain cities, or some of them to an individual person, but it became beneficial to the entire church. So we go back to verse 1 and 2. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So he starts out this foreword, and he is the only gospel writer to do so with a bit of a reason why he's writing this, a little bit of a preface. It's not a, a statement of what he was proposing to do, but of course what he already had done. And he first, he acknowledges that many have taken in hand already what he is about to do also. He starts out by saying that he is not the first that is writing down this history, the message, the, the biography of the life of Christ. Uh, he's not critical of them here. He doesn't show that whether they were wrong or whether they were heretical uh, or what their motives were. We should not be surprised that many of these, uh, that there were others writing about this, of course. We have, we have biographies from men long ago, Alexander the Great and others, pharaohs, of what their lives were. And of course, people that had dealings with the Lord Jesus, people that were perhaps healed by them, 
were writing things down as well. Perhaps they would send a letter home about the miraculous events that happened to them. He could not be referring yet to the, uh, the, the apocryphal gospels which came later. So, and he may even have used Mark and Matthew in his gathering of, of data. Yet, Luke finds it important, and of course he's moved by the Holy Spirit to write a complete account of all that he had researched so that his friend may have a proper understanding, all things related to the coming of Christ and God's dealing with his people. Calvin writes about the other accounts that they may have been short sketches, brief accounts, but not written with ill intent, but simply incomplete or written without order or arrangement. And when he says in this verse that he's doing this in order, we should not think of a strict chronological order, although much of it is, but in the sense that he's grouping things together and sets them in an orderly way. And Luke is after readability and he puts things together, connected and it's coherent and generally it is in order. Then he says that the account is to fall most, is most surely believed amongst us. Us, meaning not just Luke, but the early infant church as he had heard it from the Apostle Paul and the other disciples that he would have met as he traveled with Paul. The word believed at the end of verse 1, maybe in some of your Bibles, is, is, is translated as fulfilled, meaning most surely it's fully laid and applied to a ship that is full. There is no doubtfulness about it. Uh, there's nothing in his gospel where he says, well, perhaps Jesus went this way or perhaps it happened so and so. Noah's account, he says, is most surely believed amongst us, what I'm about to tell you. There was already uh, letters around, of course, and he is compiling further information. He means to say and imply a fullness of evidence and that is supported by the facts. He is writing here a full, in full and complete confidence. These things, Luke writes, were accomplished among them and believed amongst us, appealing to the witness of the, of the church. He did not get this from meditating on some mountain or writing down his own thoughts apart from those who had ministered the word and were chosen by Christ. Peter writes about they were not following cunningly devised fables. And, uh, and Luke is writing the same thing here. Luke had traveled with the Apostle Paul. He knew all that God had promised in the Old Testament. We see that he's very familiar with the Old Testament, the promises, the types, and the pictures of the coming of the Messiah. And they all found its fulfillment in the Redeemer. And they do not, these things not merely happened or occurred, but they rather reach its fulfillment in Christ. And Luke will prove that again and again throughout this book. And he starts with that in this chapter, actually, pointing back to the Old Testament writings and whom he was very familiar with. Note in the second verse, he continues to make a case for the certainty of what he's about to write. The things are not make belief. He uh, things he had not heard from second or many generations back, but he had contact, as I said, with the apostles, probably with the, the 70 that he talks about in chapter 
uh, ten and other eyewitnesses and observed that had observed of all that had happened. Imagine in all those months that he traveled with the Apostle Paul, what he had learned from Paul, what he could have asked him to ask more details about things and of the apostles themselves. Here he's saying that he was not an eyewitness, but others were, and he had spoken with them from the account that follows. And here in this chapter, he may have interviewed Mary, Zacharias, Elizabeth for the information that he is about to gather. He has checked his sources, and he speaks about the eyewitnesses. Of course, First John 1 writes about this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life. He is saying in this account, this gospel is rooted in history. And Theophilus could talk to some of these people himself if he wanted to. He points to the people outside in the scriptures at that time, outside the Old Testament. These were eyewitnesses and ministers, verse 2 of his word. And they have been authorized and chosen to be the vessels to bring the gospel. They were subject to the Lord Jesus himself, approved by the Lord, and they had themselves been subject to his word. He speaks, of course, very well of the apostles, and he has high regard for them. But he also records the fall of Peter. He does record the um, dispute between Paul and Barnabas. He doesn't leave out things that might not be very nice. Um, so it was not hearsay or speculation. Luke roots his account in evidence that he had heard from these men and women themselves. One pastor writes, the things we claim as Christians were not done in secret. They were done in space and time and leave a historical footprint. And Luke gives us many historical dates and places and figures in this book. Think of King Herod, Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, to name a few. Pontius Pilate, of course, ends up being in our Apostles' Creed. It is an order that we would ground our faith in the life of Christ in, in history. Pontius Pilate existed, and his, this creed is, um, he is placed to give it historical contact, to place him in time and give him a place. In chapter 3, verse 1, he gives us details as to the years even when Tiberius and Pontius reigned. Again, we see his attention to detail, as a historian should be, and as a doctor should be. Luke also names many cities, nations, and islands, and these could be checked and verified. Time and again, the work of Luke has been confirmed by archaeology, and other historical sources. Many things even in the last hundred years have been verified by certain archaeological finds. And we see that, we know this already, but we see that the Bible stands the test of time, both internal and external. There was a famous liberal scholar, his name was Sir William Ramsey. He wrote many books. He was highly educated, had a certain very high posts at Oxford and Aberdeen. And he was an 
archaeologist and a New Testament scholar. And he believed all kinds of modernistic thoughts about the New Testament, that it wasn't written by Paul, that it was written much later, and so on. It was a certain school of thought. And church historian Stephen Nichols writes, he set out to write a book to disprove Paul's travels in the book of Acts. But after years of investigating every single detail of tracing places mentioned in Acts and looking at all and looking at all the authorities, Ramsey came to the exact opposite conclusion. He came to the conclusion that not only was Luke a great historian, but that Luke was among the great historians of the first rank. Ramsey said the first and essential quality of a great historian is truth. What he says must be trustworthy. And he found Luke to be one of the most, if not the most trustworthy historians of the ancient world. So Luke says in these opening verses that we have a biblical faith. It's rooted into what God has promised to Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob, the prophets, and so on. It's a historical faith that there were eyewitnesses, plenty of them, and that it's a faith that is verifiable. As Luke puts it in Acts 1 verse 3 when he speaks about the resurrected Christ by many infallible proofs. Luke, as he says here in verse 3, carefully investigated these things. In the life of Christ from the beginning to the first. He starts with John, his forerunner, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus, to Christ's ascension. He even in chapter 3 goes all the way back to Adam. You know, Matthew starts with uh, Abraham, Luke focuses more on the Gentiles. He goes all the way back to Adam. That word understanding here given in verse 3 gives you, and that gives you the idea of fully known, having traced out or having stepped into the footsteps of all those things that are, have happened. And he had come to a full satisfaction of its truth. Calvin writes of that word, it's the idea of carefully treading in the footstep of others that nothing may escape them. I write unto you, Theophilus, that you may be certain of what you already heard regarding Christ, his life, his message, and his salvation that he brings. The Christian is one of heart and mind. We don't have Gnostic mystical faith in other religions that Places don't make any sense, they're not even there, but it's played out in God's world, in history. And Luke, from, his, from the outset, tells his friend he has carefully examined all of this. And you can sense his joy, his excitement, as he writes his friend. He is fully convinced himself. And and uh, he, is, he is excited to, to tell Theophilus this and that he is a chosen vessel also to give this faith to others. And we also see here, in closing, the nature of biblical inspiration of the, the, the writers. God used Luke's natural gifts, his interests, his faculties, and his mind when he investigated the truth. Yet God, by his Holy Spirit, presided over those faculties and he steered them and he kept them from error. So he came to a perfect understanding of all things. William Barclay writes, 
The word of the Lord is given, but it is given to the man who is seeking for it. God guided his inspired writers by, by guiding their purpose, their research, and by protecting them from error. Luke is saying to his friend and to us, test the truth and seek it, be assured of it. Seek the truth while it may be found, while you have a Bible. No other word offers this type of certainty other than God's word. It gives us all the big questions in life about purpose and eternity, destiny, judgment. And pastor writes, religions can be beautiful and contain a lot of good, but if they are false, then they are futile. A person's faith is only as good as the object he rests his faith on. We can be confident in what we believe only if what we believe is true. What Christianity offers is a faith that is biblically, historically, and verifiably true, and therefore trustworthy. Believe the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is true, and it is the only reason to do so. May the Lord bless us and grant us his spirit as we look together with Luke and gaze upon the unsearchable riches of our great Savior. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank thee again for your word. Thank you that you have preserved it for us all these years later. We thank you that you have used men throughout history to pen it down, Father. And uh, we thank you that we have four gospels from different angles to give us a great picture of the life of our great Redeemer. Father, we ask you that you would help us to apply your word when we go home, when we read it, in, uh, during the week, Lord, that we have a hunger for it and we truly would be changed by it. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.